Genesis is coming to the end of the beginning, and we begin to see how some of the themes and ideas that are introduced right at the beginning of the book and what needs to happen uh, is coming to a conclusion. And so, thank you. And so as we come this morning, let's turn to the Lord in prayer, and let's also ask that God would help us see how this amazing story also has implications for our lives today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the example of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now as we come to the story of Joseph, Lord, and how you worked among your people so many years ago, and how these great ideas of the fall and redemption are being worked out in the lives of your people. And just as you worked in their lives so many years ago, you are also working today. And so, Lord, help us to see how the lessons of the past, Lord, might be lived out among your people today, that we might be found faithful. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. When we left off last Sunday, we saw one powerful way that Joseph points to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. At the end of Genesis chapter 46, we saw a key exchange between Joseph and his brothers, where before they were to appear before Pharaoh, he had told them, tell Pharaoh that you are cares of livestock, because every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. And so he's basically warning them that the Egyptians really discriminated against and despised shepherds. So he said, use the more general term. You, you care for livestock. And the first thing that the brothers do when they appear before Pharaoh in Genesis chapter 47 is they tell Pharaoh, we're shepherds, just as our fathers were. And yet, we see that Pharaoh does above and beyond what they require. That's better. <laughs> so they are accepted and loved for the sake of Joseph. And Joseph there, you remember, was sent before his family in order to prepare the way before them. We saw that there were so many things in Joseph's life that likewise pointed to the life of Christ, how he had gone from the place of being a favored son, and he had been humiliated, became a slave, and then even imprisoned. But that imprisonment was a way that God prepared him to be someone who would redeem his family. And we saw how that then helps us understand how one day God would redeem not just Jacob's family, but all the earth. And as we come to our passage today, we see how that redemption for Joseph's family not only redeems Joseph, but it also redeems the Egyptians. But as we are going through Genesis chapter 47, there's another aspect to this story that we have to understand. 
And so when we see these characters that point forward to Jesus Christ, there's another way in which they are going to help us and prepare us to receive the one that the Lord would send. And so let me give you a little story to illustrate how, as we go into Genesis 47, how the character of Joseph and how God's work in Joseph uh, also points to the one who was to come. So once upon a time, there was a wealthy widower who had a sweet and gracious daughter. This widow married a proud and haughty widow who had two daughters of her own. This new wife began to hate the widower's daughter because her kind and gracious nature showed up the meanness and the pettiness of her two daughters. So she forced the widow's, widower's daughter to serve her two daughters and to do all the menial chores of the household. So this poor girl is forced into a life of servitude, and even at night she doesn't have a warm bed with blankets to sleep in. And so instead she curls up by the fireplace in an effort to stay warm. The two mean stepsisters taunt her and tease her and give her a nickname to reflect how often in the morning she would rise up with ash and cinders all over her body. But one day, the prince of that kingdom invites all the people of the land to a grand royal ball. The two stepsisters prepare to attend the ball and purchase beautiful gowns to wear. They tease this little cinder girl to tears, taunting her that servants are not invited to the ball and telling her what a wonderful time she will miss. However, once the stepsisters and daughters uh, and the stepmother have left, the girl's fairy godmother appears and transforms a pumpkin into a golden carriage, some nearby animals into attendants, her rags into a lovely gown, and gives her a beautiful pair of glass slippers. She then attends the ball where everyone is astounded at her beauty and grace. The prince is entranced and spends the entire evening with her. But even as the prince delights in the company of this lovely young lady, before midnight, she dashes from the palace, leaving everyone to wonder who this wonderful, mysterious woman is. Desperate to meet her again, the prince throws another ball. And this beautiful woman comes again, and the prince is again entranced with her grace and her wit. But again, just before midnight, she dashes off again. But this time, as she leaves the palace, she loses one of those beautiful, intricately designed glass slippers. This is a wonderful discovery for the prince, who finds that glass slipper and has a magnificent case built to house the slipper and display it. A lighting system is devised to show off all the beautiful facets of this glass slipper. Eventually, the prince comes to admire the slipper so much that he loses interest in whether the lovely lady even shows up for the ball as he spends time admiring this beautiful glass slipper. Well, if the story was told in that way, 
Disney probably wouldn't have done nearly as well. Because the whole point of the intervention of the fairy godmother and the hope of the story is that Cinderella and her prince meet and live happily ever after. As we come into Genesis chapter 47, the sovereignty of God is on full display. He has been the one to orchestrate all these things that have occurred. Every step of Joseph's journey from favored son to slave and then to prisoner and then to ruler over Egypt has been planned by God. And we see this in how God had given Joseph dreams at the beginning of his life, telling him these are the things to come. And Joseph remembers God's provisions as he recalls those prophecies when his brothers appeared before him. And now we saw at the beginning of Genesis 47 how on account of Joseph, Pharaoh and all Egypt had also accepted this family and settled them in the best of the land. In this next section of the narrative, as the famine continues, Joseph preserves not only his family, but all of Egypt. And Joseph validates Pharaoh's trust in him as he manages all that had been entrusted to him so well and preserves the lives of so many. But as we go through this section of the narrative, one of the things we will see is how this story and what is given to us in Joseph both helps us to prepare us to receive how God's salvation will come through his son, but also helps us understand how what we have already received is not enough. And so certainly, Joseph is a type of Christ and points us forward to the nature of the mission of Christ. But Joseph is not enough. And so turn with me to Genesis 47, and we'll walk through the rest of this passage as well as part of Genesis 48. And we'll see what is happening. And we read the beginning section. Uh, and at, the, at this stage in our narrative, the Egyptians are coming to Joseph. As it says in verse 13, there was no food in all the land. For the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, both that land of Egypt and where Jacob and his family had been, languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they had bought. And Joseph brings this money into Pharaoh's house. And so Joseph is beginning to distribute that grain throughout the famine, and the Egyptians are coming, and they're purchasing the grain, being preserved from that famine. But in the course of time, through the seven years of famine, the money, says in verse 15, was all spent in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, and the, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that 
Our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, so that land may not be desolate. Um, as we look at this passage here, with our modern eyes, I think that there's a little bit of a angst because we see, oh, you know, the people are selling, giving all their possessions. They run out of possessions. They give their herds and their livestock, and then the herds and the livestock are gone, and now they're, in a sense, selling themselves to Pharaoh. In one sense, this is not uh, perhaps uh, as bad as how we would see it because the kind of servanthood that the Egyptians are offering to Joseph and to Pharaoh is, in a sense, a kind of rental system, as you can see how the arrangement will progress, because a fifth of everything that comes in will now go to Pharaoh. Uh, and the way that this arrangement works is, uh, and we see this actually reflected later on in the nation of Israel, because if someone becomes destitute and they have nothing to live upon, they can go to someone and sell themselves into slavery. But the kind of slavery that they had in those times was much different than what we had in our nation. And if you had a good master, uh, and the law had provided for that, you could actually remain as a slave in the household of, of that master. And the reason for that was that the master was then obligated to care for you. And so we see something probably somewhat like that in this passage. So as the Egyptians run out of resources, what they are in a sense doing is they are entrusting themselves to Joseph and to Pharaoh. And so in receiving their service, Joseph is also taking responsibility to preserve their lives. And the way that this will work is that, uh, as we see in verse 24, as a harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and forth this shall be your own as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your household and as food for your little ones. In a sense, that actually looks a little bit like income tax, right? Uh, in a similar way, we might say we are servants to the U.S. government, and actually we're paying a lot more than one-fifth at this point. Uh, but here, uh, in terms of this arrangement that Joseph is coming to with the people, he, in a sense, and the picture we have is he is now responsible for preserving not only the lives of his family, but also the lives of the Egyptians, and they are all being brought under the rule of Pharaoh. Um, and especially for Jacob's family, which has been given the land and given the food, they're preserved very, very well. But there are a few signs here that point to something greater. And so if you were a, uh, one of Jacob's family at this point in time, this would look like a very comfortable arrangement, right? Everything you need. Your son or your brother is the ruler over all of Egypt. You are being provided for and you have been settled in the best of the land during a time of difficulty and you are prospering. Now, uh, many of you went through a judge's class with my wife, Irene. I want to ask you, what has unfortunately been the case every single time 
God's people have been in a place of prosperity. You saw a certain cycle in the book of Judges, right? Is this pattern of God blesses his people, they start to take him for granted, they start to fall away, they become unfaithful, God brings judgment to remind them who they are dependent upon, they cry out to the Lord, he delivers them, he brings them prosperity, and the cycle goes on and on and on. And here we have a situation where again, uh, Jacob and his family here are doing very, very well. But what are a few of the things that are pointing ahead to something where we realize we need a greater Savior? That what is here is not what we should settle for. In other words, in terms of the analogy I tried to give you at the beginning, where if we focus on what is here and now, we're really, in a sense, admiring the glass slipper and forgetting the beautiful and gracious woman. Well, there are two groups who come through this famine particularly well, right? And that is one, Joseph's family. But the other group that you see is the priests. So if you look uh, at verses 21 and 22, it says, as for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Well, that seems a fairly, perhaps, innocuous thing. But who are the people who were receiving this word? This, this book of Genesis that we now read, who were the original recipients of this book? These are the Torah, the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, right? Uh, during the time of the Exodus, when Israel was leaving the land of Egypt, a land which had become a land of bondage and slavery. And in order to deliver and bring out the people from the land of Egypt, what had God done? Well, many of you will remember the plagues that had been brought through the agency of Moses, which had devastated the land of Egypt and convinced Pharaoh, at least temporarily, to let the people go. And you remember that these plagues were very particularly designed. And in fact, they were related to something, right? What were they related to? They were related to the religion of Egypt. And the different plagues showed God's sovereignty and power over all the gods of the Egyptians. So uh, one of the famous Egyptian gods, Ra, the sun god, right? And the land had been struck by darkness. And every one of these deities of Egypt had been shown to be powerless in the face of Almighty God. And yet we see here where Jacob's family had been put in a very good position, and yet in this little innocuous statement, but as the Israelites who were leaving Egypt would know very well, this was the seed of something that would come and become actually part of what would oppress them in the land of Egypt. And so there is a warning here that in this narrative, although all is temporarily well, 
that there will be something else that is needed. Second, we see that Jacob himself has learned a very important lesson. And so, look at the end of Genesis chapter 47 and verse 29. And so, uh, I don't want to skip over some of the blessing. Israel, it says in verse 27, settles in the land of Egypt and the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. And so you see that there's a certain symmetry there because Joseph is 17 years old when he's taken from his family. But then he's brought back. And so this is part of the blessing. God has provided for him. That which had been taken away had been restored to him. And so in that way, Egypt was a land of a fulfillment of a certain type of promise because Jacob had been reunited with his beloved and missing son. But even there, he realizes this is not all of God's blessing. In fact, it only points forward to something more. And so uh, in verse 29, it says, And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Jacob has a hope, a greater hope than what Egypt offers. God brought Jacob to Egypt for a time according to the covenant that had been given to Abraham. And Jacob knows that promise, that covenant, which has been reaffirmed to him multiple times, that they would be brought out of the land of Canaan, that their descendants would be enslaved within the land, but that they would come out again with great possessions. And so here, Jacob remembers that promise. And even though here is the place where he has been restored to the presence of his son, his beloved son. He knows that this is not the complete fulfillment of the promises given to Abraham. And so in a sense, what he does is he uses his own burial to remind his descendants of this greater covenant, this greater promise of God, that he would restore them to a better land at the proper time, and at the proper place. And Jacob demonstrates his trust in those promises of God by asking Joseph to bury him, not where all the family was, not where they would be able to celebrate his life and visit his tomb, but in the place of the promise of God. And he uses his own coming death and his body to point his descendants towards the fulfillment of God's promises. There's a third thing, which is we see how we, how, how Jacob himself, but how we also ought to see the fulfillment of God's promises to him and to us. And so look at the beginning of chapter 48. So after Jacob has Joseph swear to him to bury him in the land of Canaan, he's told, behold, your father is ill. And he takes with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob sits up in his bed, 
And look what he does in verse 3. Jacob says to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And so what Jacob does here is he reminds Joseph of those promises. And that's a very important thing. It's a very important principle in the family of God. For those of you who have families, what's one thing that we must do within our families? And, and this is something that Irene and I love to do with our children, is we remind them of how God has been faithful to our family. We remind them of how God has brought us through many different trials and difficulties and has been faithful to us. And this is what God himself commands Israel to do in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And when you look at that passage, the next thing that follows it is the instruction to teach your children of all that God has done for you. And so we're just looking here at all these promises that have been fulfilled to Jacob and his family. And yet what those fulfilled promises do is remind Jacob to look forward to the greater promise that is yet to be fulfilled. It strikes me that this is something that actually as an immigrant church and a Chinese church that is very important for us to remember. Because we live in a land where there is great opportunity. Um, many people have done very, very well here. And it would be very tempting to look upon and focus upon this world and our place within it and how we might prosper in it. And yet, what does Jacob do here? They are already prospering in the land of Egypt. They're multiplying in the land of Egypt. They're gaining possessions in the land of Egypt. And yet Jacob's telling him, we're leaving. We're leaving soon. And when I die, don't bury me here. But remember the promises of God and how he came to me at Luz, and this is what he's promised to me, and this is how he's fulfilled it. And remember, there's greater promises to be fulfilled. And here's, I think, where we can see there is something so directly transferable to us, right? because there have been great and precious promises fulfilled. Our sins have been forgiven by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. For those of us living here, many people have prospered and are doing so well. And it would be so tempting to focus upon our lives here and live for these blessings. And yet, when we focus upon what we have attained here, what we hope to achieve or what we have achieved here, we're settling for the glass slipper and losing the girl. God gave Jacob and Israel signs, things that pointed them forward. And so easy to see in their case, right? Because we know that the land of Egypt becomes for Israel a land of bondage and slavery. But that also serves to us as a sign because Israel itself in the Exodus becomes a sign 
that there must be a greater deliverance to come. And then later on, when Jesus will come, many of you have been studying the book of Matthew together with us in our Bible studies, and we see that Jesus is pictured as the greater Moses. And the events of the temptation where Jesus goes out into the wilderness parallel that journey of Israel through the Exodus. And so it's very easy for us to see that if Jacob's family here settles for Egypt and the comfort that Egypt offers, and even when it becomes very clearly a land of bondage and slavery, you remember the words of Egypt as they're going through the Exodus, remember, and, and, and they're, they're getting manna every day, and they say, why did you bring us out here to die? In Egypt, we ate meat from pots as we were making bricks without straw, being driven by the Egyptian slave masters, but they forget that. And it's so easy to become complacent and love what seems to be secure. And so Israel becomes a sign for us that there is a greater salvation. And so Israel was delivered out of that land of bondage and slavery, but you and I are still living in a land bound by sin and death. We are living in a land where the prosperity of this land tempts us to settle for what is given here. And it's so easy for those of you in school, so easy perhaps to forego the worship of God, to prepare for an exam. So easy for those of you who are working to sacrifice commitment to the church and service to God to advance our careers. So easy to compromise the single-minded purpose we ought to have to worship and honor and serve Jesus Christ in order to enter into a marriage or other relationships. We're going to be watching a what I would call a prolegomena to the gospel that C.S. Lewis gives us, something to prepare us for the gospel. And one of the illustrations that uh, C.S. Lewis uses that we'll see is the example of Neville Chamberlain. Do you guys remember Neville Chamberlain, the prime minister of England? And you remember during a time of great uncertainty, he tried to secure something for today, and he sacrificed a lot of things, part of Austria, and he signed a deal with someone who was a type of devil, right? And he came back to England waving a piece of paper and infamously said, this represents peace in our time. There's such temptation to find the easy solution, to settle for what we hope we can have now, and yet those things are so fleeting, taken away so easily. There is nothing secure in this world where rust and moth corrupts, thieves break it and steal. But God calls us, even as he demonstrated, even as Jacob recognized here, God had brought him to the place in his life. He was no longer just living for the son who he had been reunited with, who he had loved so much but he pointed that son to the future and the greater salvation to come. You and I 
are also called not to settle for the glass slipper of this world, so easily shattered, but instead to fix our eyes upon heaven, remember our citizenship there, and eagerly await the Savior who comes from there with a greater salvation. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the example of Jacob, who you had walked with for so many years. We thank you for your great and precious promises to that family, which you were bringing to a fulfillment. And yet we know, Lord, there was a greater fulfillment to come. In our turn, Lord, I pray that you would give us conviction not to live for this world, the jobs it offers, the careers it offers, the power, the influence, the position it offers, but help us to fix our eyes upon Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, that we might be prepared for heaven. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. We've been very blessed to be hearing the stories uh, of one another's lives and how God has been working through the lives of uh, those who have been joining our church and joining this congregation. Uh, today, we're particularly blessed, as she rolls her eyes, <laughs> to hear from Anne. And for those of you who have been in Anne's Bible study with her, and uh, I've been there and blessed to be there, uh, they have been such an encouragement in so many ways. And uh, I've heard a little bit of their story because actually uh, her husband and I are very close in terms of like when we grew up, all the things we lived through. Um, and so they've been a particular encouragement to me. But all of you this morning get to hear a little bit of what God has been doing in Anne's life. Anne, welcome you to come up and give your testimony.